Welcome to the Scotts Hill Podcast. At Scotts Hill, our mission is to join God in His work of transforming lives. One of the ways we join God is by studying and proclaiming His Word. So each week, our podcast features our Sunday morning sermons where one of our pastors explains, illustrates, and applies the Bible to our lives. We hope that you are challenged and encouraged by the Word of the Lord. Good morning and welcome to Scott's Hill. So glad that you're able to be here live. Those of you watching us online, thank you for inviting us into your home wherever you may be. Those of you in the Cross Point Center, I want to give a shout out to you as you meet there every week um, to participate in worship, to gather with the folks that you have made a commitment to gather there for. We're so grateful that you are doing that. Also want to let you know here that as we continue to grow and as we begin to run out of space and it begins to be uncomfortable, there is space in the Cross Point Center and we want to invite you to consider maybe going to be a part of that on Sunday mornings. You could go there on a Sunday morning, see what it's like and if that's a place where you would like to go, we'd like for you to um, help us out in that so we can continue to make room and space for others who are coming. Uh, for those of you who are first-time guests, my name is Phil Ortigo. I serve as the scene pastor here, and we're happy that you are here this morning. You know, we all travel around in our groups, don't we? We have our own little um, people that we like to hang out with. We all have our own um, um, infinity groups. You know, you might have a group of people that like to do this thing this way and that, and people tend to talk in certain languages when they're in a certain group, when they're in a certain tribe, when they're hanging out with a certain group of what they call tells. You know, you can tell who they are and who they belong to. And in that, we have our language, our little codes, our little jargon that we like to use. And if you're not part of that group, sometimes you're not quite sure what they're talking about. And I'll just give you some illustrations. On the screen, there are a lot of different letters that people use to connect to a number of different groups that they identify with. For example, if you're into the politics and the political arena, you might say POTUS. If you're into that, everybody knows what POTUS is, President of the United States, or SCOTUS, Supreme Court of the United States. Other people might not pay attention to that. If you're into football, for example, you might know what a PI is. What's a PI? Pass interference. What's an RPO? It's a run-pass option. So when people are talking about that in that circle, you know what they're saying. If you're not in there, you might not know it. Or if you're into baseball, you might say RBI, which means runs batted in. All right, now if you're in a, uh, on texting, they're all kind of little texting codes. Some of these are old, some of these are newer, but, but they've been around for a while. LOL is, is laughing out loud. It's not lots of love. One girl sent a, a message to her mom that her grandfather passed away and a grandmother and a mother sent back LOL. Don't do that. It means <laughs> laughing out loud. Um, I don't even know. Okay, this means post a picture. Um, um, in case you missed it, I almost missed that one. In case you missed it, um, if you know, you know. You know, if you know, you knew that one. And then teenagers are using little phrases these days that might throw you off. Full send. Full send means, hey, I'm all in. I'm going at this full bore. I am holding nothing back. I am full send. No cap means no lie. This is authentic. This is not fake news. This is the real deal. I like this one. Bussin. 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 Bussin' means excited. Something is about to be good. Pastor Phil's message was bussin' today. You know, that kind of thing. 
And then you got finna. This is probably one of my favorite ones. A teenager might say, man, I'm, I'm finna get a good job this summer. And so it's talking about they use that language. And then, of course, there's fit. Fit does not refer to like Garrett Burns over there. <laughs> fit is talking about an outfit. And it might be used like, girl, I like that fit on you today. They're looking good, you know? And so these are some of the terms that people use. Now, I know you're going to use these today. And grandparents, use those with your grandchildren. You will blow their minds as you do this. Or they will say, no, don't say that, (laughs) which my kids would. Now, the reason we're talking about this is everybody has their vocabulary, that we use. And for the last several chapters in Romans, the Apostle Paul has been giving us salvation vocabulary. He has been giving us salvation um, jargon. He's been using the lingo of people who know Christ. And what he has done is he's taken us deep in the understanding of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And these things are very important. A lot of Christians in our day have become so illiterate to biblical terms that it's hard for them to even define for the lost world why these terms are so important. And we really need to know theology. And in the last several weeks, we've been looking at the jargon that the Apostle Paul has been given us. And I just want to review those real quick. He talks about condemnation. In chapter 1, verses 18, to the end of that chapter, he talks about that we are under the judgment of God. And we have seen for weeks the bad news is that we are under the wrath of God, and we stand condemned. But then he begins telling us about justification, that those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, that there is an exchange. When Jesus died on the cross, he took your sins and God imputed to you his righteousness. And in that moment, you are acquitted and you are counted as righteous. Very important. Then he talked about redemption. That is through the blood of Jesus that we have been bought. Not only as we counted as righteous because of the blood, we are forgiven. And then propitiation. This big word, which means when Jesus died on the cross, he satisfied the justice and the righteousness of God. He satisfied the wrath of God by his death on the cross. And it takes faith in Christ that activates all of these things. And it's only by the grace of God, his unmerited favor that he gives to us, that we can have reconciliation restored to a holy God. Why are these important? Suppose a friend came to you this week and asked you this. What is the big deal about Jesus dying on the cross? You Christians keep talking about him dying on the cross. How can his death on the cross 2,000 years ago impact my life today? Why is it that he had to die? How does his suffering impact my salvation? And you walk a person right through all of these things to help them to understand. Let me tell you what Jesus did. And when you and I come to grips with those truths... We began to share the depth of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Is it true that Jesus died for sinners? Yes. And while unbelievers may need to hear that, believers need to go deep. You know, the best water is not found in a shallow well. And to find better water, you don't make the circumference of the well bigger. You go deeper. 
And the deeper you go into what Christ has done for you, listen, the greater the joy and the celebration you engage in because of the work of Christ on the cross. That is what chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 is about. Paul's about to make a shift in the tone. For the last four chapters, he's been arguing. He's been in this argumentation mode. He has been in an argument, but now he is moving into an adoration. He is moving from argumentation to adoration, and now he is about to celebrate the incredible great news that we get because of justification by faith. Matter of fact, Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote this about chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. He says, in the whole Bible, there is hardly another chapter which can equal this triumphant text. This text that we're about to study is a text of celebration. It's a text of triumph. It's a text of victory. It's a text that should be in the heart and the minds of every believer, and it should move us to great celebration. I mean, when we read this, we should like, repeat like the words of Cool in the Gang, celebrate good times, come on, because what we hear in this is far greater than anything Cool in the Gang could ever have offered. By the way, they sang it a little better than I did. So what does it look like? Take your Bibles, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. We're going to unpack these verses this morning. And I want to show you six things that the Apostle Paul says are benefits from having been counted righteous because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, let's stop right there. You're going to think this is going to be a long sermon. <laughs> Therefore. Anytime you see the word therefore, it means we have to ask the question, what is the there, therefore? What is the therefore, therefore? And so why is it there? There are four great therefores through the book of Romans. We find it in chapter 3, verse 20, where he says, therefore, we conclude that all men um, are under the wrath of God. And then you can jump all the way to chapter 8, where it says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, a wonderful chapter. Then chapter 12, therefore, present your bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. And then in this passage, he begins, therefore, since we have been justified. Because we have been justified, therefore, everything I've just said, and I'm going to recap for you the wonderful blessings that we have because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And because he has acquitted us because of the righteousness of Christ, these six things are yours. What are they? Number one, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. The world has been searching for this elusive peace ever since the foundation of the earth. People want peace. And here Paul tells us how we get it. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, because we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. We are at peace with God. And the only way you and I can have peace with God is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen, the world is looking for peace in all kinds of different ways. And I've had a number of people would say to me, well, I just want the peace of God. 
Well, the peace with God and the peace of God are two different things. You cannot experience the peace of God until you have peace with God. And most people in our culture want to reverse that. They want the peace of God. They want to have good feelings about God. They want to make themselves feel like they're in good standing, but they have never done what's necessary to resolve the, the, the issue of enmity between them and God. And so what Paul is saying is the only way you can have peace with God is through that relationship with Jesus Christ. I hear a lot of people say, particularly at their deathbed experiences, and I've heard so many people say this, well, you know, I've made my peace with God. Well, okay, here's the bigger question. Has God made peace with you? What is the basis of your peace with God? Is it just because you resolve the fact that you're going to die? Is it a fact that you say, I'm not an enemy of God, I've left God alone and he's left me alone? We're good. No, you're not. Because it's only through a relationship with Jesus Christ can you have peace. And for those who have put their faith in Jesus, listen, you're reconciled. You're at peace with him. And he is at peace with you. Now, let me say this. There's a difference between peace with God and the peace of God. Peace with God is founded on a fact on the fact that Jesus died, you surrendered your life to him, God has counted you as righteous, therefore you have peace with God. That's on a fact. Peace of God often is a feeling. It's a feeling. I have the peace of God. I have the love of God. I have the joy of God, and I'm walking in all of these things. And sometimes Christians get this backwards. They'll come to me and they'll say, oh, oh, I just don't feel that I have God's peace. I just don't feel that God loves me. I just don't feel that I'm walking in a way I should. I would say to them, it doesn't matter how you feel. It's the fact that matters. Watchman Nee used to tell this illustration. It's a wonderful illustration. He talks about three men walking on a very narrow wall, okay? And they could fall off easy. The first man, his name is fact. The second name, man, his name is faith. The third man, his name is feeling. Now, as long as fact is walking ahead and faith is following fact and feeling is following faith, they're in good shape. But the moment that faith takes his eyes off of fact and starts looking at feeling, then they can lose their balance and they can all fall off the wall. See, the reality is this. Your peace with God is based on the fact of what Jesus has done. It's not on the feelings that you may have. And we are never to feel our way into belief. We are to believe our way into our feelings. And so our feelings are always to follow our faith, which is rested on the promises of God's word. And a lot of Christians get in a lot of trouble because they live their life by feeling rather than the faith on the reality of what Jesus has done for them. So in Christ, the first thing we have, we have peace with God. But it gets better than that. Now that's really good. We have peace with God and we have the peace of God. But here's the second thing Paul says. At least we stand in grace. Not only do we have peace with God, but we have the very grace of God in our life. Now I want you to notice how he says this. He says, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
Now, grace is unmerited favor. And grace is God's favor towards us. It's his sovereign grace that draws us into a relationship with him. We've done nothing to earn it. But Paul's not talking about saving grace here. Paul is talking about a sustaining grace. He's talking about God's favor in your life. When you have peace with God and you are walking in the peace of God, you also have the favor of God in your life. And it's a broad span It's not just the grace that leads you into salvation. It's the grace that you need, listen, in every moment, in every minute, at every point in your life. We need the continued grace of God. Now, there are three things that he tells us about this grace. Number one, this grace grants access. I love that. The grace in which you've obtained access, that means access to the throne room of God. You have access into the throne room of the king of kings because of your standing in Christ. You can come in and out. When Jesus was crucified and when he died, the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom, granting all men access into the presence of God. And as a believer, you have direct access into his throne room. When my kids were little... My office was located um, in another old section and I had a solid door. And my staff knew that when the door was closed, it meant that I was unaccessible, except for if there was an emergency. And so they would have to wait until I opened my door because I'm either in study or I'm in counseling, I'm in praying or something like that. So they would know not to open the door if my door was closed. However, my children could open the door anytime they wanted. And no matter what I was doing, Ron and Leslie would come, sling open the door. Hey, Dad, what you doing? Sit on my lap, pull out crayons, color, go do whatever they wanted. They had direct access to me. No one else did. Why? Because they were my kids. And because you're the children of God, you have direct access to his grace every single moment of your life. But not only is there grants access, this grace is a continual action. It's in the perfect tense, which means this. is something that happened in the past, it's continuing today, and it's going to continue in the future. It's a perfect tense. You have obtained access, you are obtaining access, and you will obtain access. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Same structure, perfect tense. For by grace you are having been saved, you will be saved, and you will continually to be saved. It's a constant barrage of grace in our life. Now here's the third thing about this grace, and this is my favorite. This grace gives complete absorption. He says, this is the grace in which you stand. We are completely absorbed by the grace of God. No matter where we go, we're moving, we're living, we're acting, we're walking in his grace. Let me give you a word picture. It'd be like you going to a body of water and you're in this body of water and it's knee deep and no matter where you go and no matter where you turn around, there is nothing but water around you and you never step out of that water. The picture is that's the kind of grace that you have. You are never out of his grace, never. And some of us think, oh, I could get out of the grace and go on this little island over here and I can sin and then after I kind of beat myself up over the sin, I'll ease back into the water of his grace. No, not even then. In the middle of your failures, in the middle of your disobedience, in the middle of your sins, you stand in his grace. You never leave it. And listen carefully. 
If no sin was too great for Jesus to atone for on the cross, then no sin is too great for a believer not to be able to be immersed in the constant grace of God. None. Because you didn't earn it, and you will never earn it even in your disobedience. You see, what is what he's saying, man? We have the peace with God. We have grace that we stand in every single moment because of what Jesus did on the cross, but it gets better. We rejoice in hope. Now, it's one thing to have peace with God. It's another thing to stand in the grace of God, but we also have the hope that God gives us. Here's how he puts it. He says, through him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, we have a hope that's not like the world's hope. The worldly hope is kind of wishful thinking. For example, it'd be like this. I hope that the Carolina Panthers at least win one game this year. That's wishful thinking, you know, that, that, that it may be. And, and, but expectant hope is what the believer has. Expectant hope is not wishful thinking. Expectant hope is hope that is based upon a certain fact and the promises of God that you are absolutely certain will become a reality. That's the kind of hope we have as children of God. Now, he says, in this hope, there are two things that we're going to experience. Number one, the expectant hope for future glory. I love this. For future glory, that one day we, this, this blows my mind, one day you and I are going to experience the very glory of God in Christ. One day we're going to be before God. And we're going to be there, and we're going to see his glory, and we get to join in that glory. I love the way Paul writes in Colossians 1.27. He says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Jesus in you is what gives you that hope of glory. It's not anything you've done. You've made no contributions toward gaining this. Jesus did it for you. And because he's in you, there's a day where you're going to experience the very glory of God. What does that look like? I don't know, but I can imagine what scripture says about it. It says that we will be joined with Christ because we will be like him. Isn't that wonderful? We will be in a place where there will be no temptation of sin. There will be no disappointment. There will be no sickness. There will be no anxiety. There will be no struggles. There will be no depression or discouragement. Now, let me tell you, we should be looking forward to that day as believers. We should look forward to the day where we get to stand face to face with our Savior and we know that we're going to share in that very glory. Now, let me say something. That does not mean we're not to enjoy things now. We can rejoice in the fact that that new baby has come along that we prayed for. We can rejoice in the fact that that new relationship is developing and it seems to be really good. We can, we can rejoice in the fact that God is transitioning our careers to a places that look exciting we can rejoice in the fact that we have a new home. But listen, we should rejoice even more in the fact that one day, all of this little bitty trinkets of the world will be passed away and the glory that I'm in with Christ is forever. There are three stages of every Christian's life. Justification, when you're counted as righteous and acquitted. Sanctification, 
the rest of your life where the Holy Spirit's making you like Christ, and then glorification is when we're with him forever. Do you know what that means? That means that the disappointment you're going through is short-lived. That means the discouragement you're going through will not always be. That means that debilitating sickness that you have will one day no longer exist. That means that cloud of depression that follows you and you struggle with every single day, one day it will be no more. And as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, this momentary light affliction pales in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that is in Christ Jesus. So in Jesus, we have this expectant future glory. But here's the second thing we have. We have expectant hope for present grief. Oh, my goodness. For present grief. Here's how he puts it. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. He tells us that there is going to be suffering, and here's what we cannot reconcile in our minds. We think that to rejoice in glory and to rejoice in suffering are incompatible, that the two don't fit together. How in the world can I rejoice for glory, but I can rejoice in the midst of the suffering? Because in the midst of the suffering, God is doing a work. Notice the process that's here. He says, not only that, we rejoice in sufferings. Why? Because suffering produces endurance. The word for endurance is patience. It's a long fuse. That's where we get the word long-suffering. And we become patient and we wait on God to do his work. But in, endurance produces character. Some of your translations say proven character. And I like that. Here's why. Every crisis proves your character. Every struggle says what you're made out of. Every difficulty will always cause who you are to surface in every situation. And no matter what we're going through, my character is proved through the, the, the struggles that I face. And the last thing, character produces hope. What does it do? It runs full circle. So as God is using suffering in my life, he's using it for his glory and for my ultimate good. I love the way Tony Marito puts this down. He helps us to understand when we're going through suffering what we should look at. He gives us three things. He says, God's priority is not to take away your problems, but to make you like Jesus. Some of us don't want to be like Jesus because we know there's a cost to it. And it's painful. Secondly, God's purposes can be trusted. God is putting you through the crucible, the fire. Why? You know what the fire does to precious metal? It burns away impurities. So that the metal becomes so shiny that the, the creator, the refiner, can only see his own reflection. And that's the heart of God for every child. To burn away the impurities that the father can see himself in your life. Here's the third thing. God's pattern always produces greater hope. There's greater hope. Why? Because as I said, it's not always going to be like this. So when we walk in justification by faith, because of that, we have peace with God. Because of that, we know that we can walk in his grace and we stand in his grace. We know that we have this expectant hope and things will get better. I love what D.A. Carson said. He put this way, my problems are nothing that a good resurrection can't fix. Isn't that true? Number four, 
we have the display of God's love. Now, this gets even better. It's one thing to walk in, in, in peace of God. It's one thing in the grace of God. It's one thing to walk in the hope of God. But you know, you can gain those things even from a tyrant God. But this God loves us. And what does he do? He displays his incredible love for us. He says in verse 5a, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. This word poured out is an amazing word. It does not mean it trickles into a heart. It doesn't mean that God uses a little dropper and he drops a little bit of love here and there. No, the word is lavished. The word is poured out to the point of overflowing and spilling beyond its boundaries. It's the picture of this parched countryside that receives this torrent of rain and reestablishes new life everywhere it touches. It is a picture that God is, doesn't skimp on his love for you and me, that he pours it out, he lavishes it, he pours it into our hearts. And he demonstrates this in two ways. Number one, through the Holy Spirit. Notice what he says about the Spirit. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love is poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. One of the measures of God's love is his Spirit to you. As a believer, his Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity, lives in you. Imagine that. Now, the Holy Spirit's role from the very beginning has been drawing you, has been convicting you, has been changing your thinking and your mindset. He is the one who has regenerated you. And at the moment that you surrender your life to Christ, he, you are baptized at conversion in the Holy Spirit. It's not a subsequent blessing that happens years later. At that moment, you're baptized into the Spirit of God then you're sealed by the Spirit of God as a down payment from God. In other words, the first installment on your salvation has been put down and it's by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he never leaves you and his desire is to fill you over and over and over with his very presence and his power. The Holy Spirit is your best friend. He is the one who comforts you in difficult times. He's the one that convicts you when you're struggling. He's the one that counsels you in all truth. He is the one that is the catalyst of holiness and desires to honor God. And he is the one that conforms you into the image of Christ. And he never leaves you. And listen, God's gift of himself in the Holy Spirit is in you. There's no greater gift than the presence of God working with you and never leaving you. But he not only shows that we get the gift of the Holy Spirit, the second thing is the cross of Christ. He has given us and demonstrated his love to us through the death of his son. Here's how Paul puts it. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died. And he died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. That means a person who is good probably won't die for a person who is better than him because there's no need to in their minds. And though perhaps a good person, uh, one would dare even to die for God, um, um, I, though perhaps a good person would want, good, a good person one would die to, even to die. I'm, I'm getting that all mixed up. But God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the point. 
You might die for a good person, but that's doubtful. But rarely would you ever consider dying for a mass murderer who goes into a bowling alley and kills 18 people. Rarely would anyone do that. But Jesus died for you and me at our worst point. Two things Paul tells us about the death of Christ. God's display, his love, of his great love was by the cost of it. It's by the cost of it that he would send his only son to die. The incredible cost that God paid for you and me. It's a beautiful picture of the love that he has for us. I mean, if God could have used any other way to redeem us, he would have done it. But he gave us his only son who bled, who willfully came and took on our punishment for us and instead of us. But here's the second part. God displays his great love by our unworthiness of it. We don't desire, deserve it. He says Christ died for the ungodly. I don't, I don't mean to alarm you this morning, but I, I need to tell you this. When you came in here and you're sitting down, you're sitting among some ungodly people today. And you are one of them. Because the fact is we were all at one point in that place. We were unworthy of the sacrifice of God. But he gave him anyway. You know what I hear people say all the time? I hear people say, God, if you really loved me, you would fill in the blank. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Yeah, yeah, you have, yeah. Maybe you, maybe the person next to you, the person behind you, you know those ungodly people say those things, you know? But the reality is we've all said it. God, if you really loved me, you would give me that job. God, if you really loved me, you would make her fall in love with me. God, if you really loved me, you would get my kids into that school. Can you imagine what that must do to the heart of the father who you don't even deserve his love, but he's given you the very best? It must grieve his heart and he must respond something like this. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You want me to test my love for you by giving you the trinkets of the world when I've given you the most precious gift that any man could ever receive in abundance and riches for eternity? Can you imagine that? And the fact that Jesus died for you and me and the fact that the Holy Spirit lives within us is a daily reminder of God's unbelievable love for us. And that should stir my heart every day that I don't spend my time testing the love of God by the trinkets of the world, but I declare his love by the gift that he has given to me in the Spirit of God and in the Son of God. That should drive me to unbelievable worship and praise. Here's the fifth thing. Got to move on. Oh, it gets better. We have full assurance of our final salvation. We have full assurance of our final salvation. Not only do we see God's love, not only do we get to experience a hope and a, and a, and a grace and a peace as I'm working backwards, but we get to have full assurance of salvation. Here's how he puts it. He says, since then, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we're reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The picture is this. If God could do the difficult thing of justifying a sinner and making him righteous, can God not do the easy thing of securing his salvation for all of eternity because of the resurrected life of Jesus Christ from the grave? If God can do the difficult thing, why do we think he can't do the easy thing? And that means this, that I have nothing to fear. I don't care what happens in the world. I don't care what happens. I do care. But what happens in the Middle East, what happens everywhere around us, no matter what happens to me, I am absolutely, solidly convinced that when I take my last breath, I am in the presence of my Savior. Not because of what I've done. Not because of the position I've had. Not because of who I am. But because of what Jesus did on the cross by justifying me. Setting me free in his grace and hope and peace and love and security. I am his. And no one can change that. No one. I am in his hands. And Jesus said, no one can snatch you out of my father's hand. Get this, I can't even jump out of his hand because I'm his. My life's verse is Romans 8.32. Here's what it says. If God did not spare his own son for us all, how will he not along with him freely give us all things? It is insane to think that God would give his son, but he wouldn't give us what we need to go through life for his glory and for eternity. We are fully secured in Christ. Here's the last thing. We rejoice in God because of our reconciliation. You know what he does? He brings it to a crescendo. We rejoice in God because of his reconciliation. Verse 11, more than that, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, I want you to notice two little things about this word, this this statement. We rejoice in God. We're not rejoicing about God. We're not rejoicing because of God. We are rejoicing in him. This moves us to a very intimate relationship with the creator of the universe. I rejoice in him. I rejoice in his attributes as we made mention of earlier in our prayer time. I rejoice in his blessings. I rejoice in his kindness. I rejoice in his endurance that he has given to me. I rejoice in him. Not just about him, not because of him. He is not simply a means to the end. He is the end itself. And everything I do is in him. I worship him. Timothy Keller, before he died, he wrote a number of things of how do you know if a person is really rejoicing in God? I'm going to put them on the screen. You can take a snapshot of them. They're not in any notes. We added this at the last minute. He says, the marks of a person who rejoices in God. Number one, your mind is deeply satisfied with the doctrine of justification by faith. You are so satisfied with that because you are counted as righteous and God will never see you anything other than that in Christ. Secondly, you only think of your past in terms of it. You don't live in shame, but in grace. Every single day, anything comes up from your past, 
It's just a reminder of the grace of God in the present. Thirdly, when you discover in yourself a new character flaw, the discovery does not make you doubt God's love. It draws you closer because you are covered in his grace. That's sanctification. I find out something new I don't like about myself. Father, thank you that it wasn't because of me that I have salvation, but only by your grace that will change that flaw. Fourthly, when you face criticism, I love this one. When you face criticism, you don't say to yourself, this is totally unfair. No, you rejoice inside with thoughts like, well, I am really much worse sinner than they know, but I'm standing in his grace. People will say to me, Phil, you seem like you got it all together. And I'll say, hey, buddy, let me tell you, you don't live with me 24-7. You don't know what I think. And even what I thought of you as you came up, no. (laughs) When you face death, you do it with serenity because you're going to a friend. Tim Keller died this year. He is with his friend. That's how you know if you rejoice in God. Therefore, having been justified by his grace, we have peace. We stand in grace. We rejoice in hope. We look forward to his incredible love. We see what he's doing in our lives every single day through suffering and difficulties. And we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our faith is secure and my rejoicing can become full circle. Believer, believer, this is what you have in Christ. May the Spirit of God take these truths and work them deep within you this week that you would be free from all the kinds of thoughts that want to enslave you, but that you would walk in freedom of Christ. It's that simple. And God's desire for you is to walk in such a way that you are so clear of his abundant love that it transforms every day of your life. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, my friend, this is for you. God has this for you. Some of you have been coming for several weeks and you've been listening to the gospel and you've been hearing the depths of it and you've been sitting there and the Holy Spirit has been dealing with your heart and changing your thinking and drawing you to himself and he has got all this for you and now he's saying to you, surrender. Today's the day of salvation. Surrender right now. Give your life to me and you will experience all of these things and more for all of eternity because it's no accident that you are here. But by his divine appointment, you have heard the truth. And God is calling to set you free. To set you free. You know what I love about C.H. Spurgeon? Just about everything. Matter of fact, C.H. Spurgeon could be our pastor emeritus at Scottsdale. Because we quote him so much. C.H. Spurgeon says he is so absolutely convinced in the justification by faith. Here's what he says. I am so confident in what God has done on the cross that I could swing over the pit of hell, hanging on to nothing but a corn stalk, looking the devil straight in the eye and singing, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. That's what we have. And that's what we're going to declare. Thank you for listening. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21 says, 
Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is our hope for you today. If you would like to connect with us, visit our website at scottsill.org slash next steps. Till next time.